0: Welcome to another episode of 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. This one from our history series is called The Great Train Crash in Crush, Texas. And it's one of those historical tidbits that remind us that truth is often stranger than fiction. This is Share Our Shows with a Friend Week. So please, if you enjoy 1001 Heroes, let others know. One big way to help us is to share our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash 1001 heroes another is to take a moment and join us at twitter the address there is 1001 podcast our show goes to twitter and we really enjoy getting a retweet there with our shows thank you have you ever wondered what people did in their spare time 100 years ago there was no internet movies were just in their infancy there was no tv no radio no nfl football and no kids sports games Sunday afternoon picnics after church were probably the most popular and anticipated events because the kids could play, all the women outdid themselves to bring the tastiest chicken and pies, and people had the day off to enjoy. Occasionally a circus would come through, and sometimes there was a hanging, which could be a big draw depending upon who was stretching the rope. So when William George Crush devised the idea to have two speeding locomotives crash into each other head-on, at full steam, so to speak, What must have seemed like half the state of Texas bought $2 train tickets to see the event. This was history being made. The next time you find yourself traveling Route 35 in north-central Texas, about 20 miles north of Waco, look for the historical sign on the northbound Frontage Road. To save you from pulling over, it reads, A head-on collision between two locomotives was staged on September 15th, 1896, as a publicity stunt for the Missouri, Kansas, and Texas Road, also called the Katy. Over 30,000 spectators gathered at the crash site, named Crush, for MKT passenger agent William G. Crush, who conceived the idea. About 4 p.m., the trains were sent speeding forward toward each other. Contrary to mechanics' predictions, the steam boilers exploded on impact, propelling pieces of metal into the crowd. Two persons were killed and many others injured, including Jarvis Dean of Waco, who was photographing the event, Sign erected 1976 by the Texas Historical Commission. Wikipedia tells us that Crush, Texas was a temporary city established as a one-day publicity stunt in 1896. William George Crush, general passenger agent of the Missouri-Kansas-Texas Railroad, popularly known as the Katy, conceived the idea to demonstrate a train wreck as a spectacle. No admission was charged, and as previously stated, train fares to the crash site were at the reduced rate of $2 from any location in Texas. As a result, about 40,000 people showed up on September 15, 1896, making the new town of Crush, Texas temporarily the second largest city in the state. Unexpectedly, the impact caused both engine boilers to explode. Debris, some pieces as large as half a drive wheel, was blown hundreds of feet into the air. The debris flew in all directions, sideways and upwards, raining down twisted hot metal destruction among the spectators, killing or injuring many of them. It was hell on wheels in Texas as men, women, and children screamed and dived for cover amidst the multiple explosions of the steam engines and the billowing cloud of white hot smoke that the impact of the boilers created. And here's how it all started. We may never know what inspired the idea in William Crush's mind, but he definitely deserves a nod in the annals of crazy ad men, like the guys on Madison Avenue that put phony deeds to one square inch of land in Alaska in every box of Quaker Oats back there just a few decades ago. I know this because I was one of those kids who hated Quaker Oats, but asked Mom to buy a box so I could make my first land investment. Ho, ho, ho. The deeds were proved worthless years later. No wonder my generation is so cynical. The idea was born from the fact that the Katy had a bunch of steam-powered locomotives that were obsolete, and despite a few orders from logging camps and smaller enterprise, they still had about 50 of them to dispose of. So Crush's proposal was to take two of the obsolete locomotives and put them on a track facing each other a couple of miles apart. The trues would then fire the engines up, get them moving, and jump off. The trains would race toward each other, picking up speed, until they met in a fiery and spectacular crash. The railroad would charge nothing to view the man-made disaster, but would profit from the tickets sold for special excursion trains running to the site. The company accepted his recommendation and put Crush in charge of the project. Three engines were chosen to be prepared for the crash. Number 999 was repainted green with red trim, and number 1001 was painted red with green trim. Each was gone over carefully so that there would be no mechanical failures on crash day. The third engine was to be held in reserve should one of the other two fail. Throughout the summer of 1896, bulletins and circulars advertising the monster crash were distributed throughout Texas. Many newspapers in Texas ran daily reports on the preparations, and some papers outside the state carried the story. As Crush had predicted, the Katy offices were flooded with ticket requests. The engines were displayed in towns throughout the state. Thousands turned out to look at them. As the arena for his spectacle, Crush selected a shallow valley just north of Waco, conveniently located close to Katy's Waco-Dallas track. In early September, 500 workmen laid four miles of track for the collision run and constructed a grandstand for honored guests, three speakers' stands, two telegraph offices, a stand for reporters, and a bandstand. A restaurant was set up in a borrowed Ringling Brothers circus tent, and a huge carnival midway with dozens of medicine shows, game booths, and lemonade and soft drink stands was built. Finally, workmen erected a special depot with a platform 2,100 feet long, and a sign was painted to inform incoming passengers that they had arrived at Crush, Texas. George Crush told a reporter that he expected a crowd of around 20,000. The first of 33 fully loaded excursion trains arrived at daybreak on September 15th, and by 3 p.m., more than 40,000 people were on the grounds, picnicking, listening to political speeches, and waiting for the great crash. Those two dollars bought a round-trip ticket from anywhere in the state, and some passengers were obliged to ride on top of the cars because there was no room left inside. As the trains dropped off anxious spectators throughout the day, the crowd swelled to between thirty and 40,000 people, and Crush, for a few hours, became the second largest town in the state. While the crowds gathered, the engine crews started checking their trains over. Speed tests were conducted on each to help predict the exact point of collision. To avoid having one of the engines get away and run wild onto the main line, the rails connecting the collision spur track with the main line were removed. Since the couplers used in those days were of the unreliable link and pin variety, the cars were chained together so they would not come apart during impact. One concern was whether each of the engine's boilers would hold up under the stress of the crash. Steam engines use a large, heavy metal pressure tank called a boiler to contain water heated to the boiling point by a fire fueled by coal, wood, or oil. At the boiling point, some of the water turns to steam. Since steam takes up... 1,675 times as much volume as the water it came from, this expansion creates a tremendous pressure inside the boiler. The high-pressure steam is transferred through pipes to the cylinders and pistons connected to the engine's driving wheels. The high-pressure steam can then move the pistons, making the locomotive go. Should a boiler rupture under pressure, the result would be almost exactly like a large bomb being set off. In 1865, the steamship the Sultana, suffered a boiler explosion while traveling north on the Mississippi. The ship was packed with an unknown number of Union soldiers returning from a prison camp, and an estimated 1,700 people died, either directly from the explosion or from drowning as the ship sank. Freed from prison camp, only to die in a steamship explosion before you could reach home. It was clear that if one or both of the boilers were to explode during the collision, the event might be too dangerous to stage. Crush had gone to the Katy's engineers and was assured that the boilers on the engines were designed to resist ruptures even in the event of a high-speed crash, and it would be virtually impossible for them to explode. Reassured, Crush went ahead with the event, though except for reporters and honored guests, spectators were to be kept back a minimum of 100 yards from the track. J.R. Sanders, in an article from Wild West Magazine, describes the event. Crush's secret spot was a tree-speckled patch of rolling land along the Katy Line, about 14 miles north of Waco and three miles south of the town of West. It was an ideal locale, a 100-acre meadow with hills to the north, south, and west. Some 200 yards west of the tracks, the sheer bank of a dry creek bed formed a natural plateau, a perfect viewing platform, and a natural demarcation for the safety zone. Crews would lay a spur north to south along the main track, where sloping terrain would send each train downhill at a nearly 2% grade for most of its final run. After building the four-mile spur and the station platform, workmen laid a pipe from two wells and five tank cars to supply dozens of faucets spaced along the spectator area. They also built a grandstand for dignitaries, a bandstand, a carnival midway, a press platform, and three separate speaker stands. Even as workers set the stage for the big event, Crush was inundated with public interest. Mail came from each coast, all points in between every city, town, and village throughout the Lone Star State. The correspondence, as one account put it, piled up to his eyes, and the three stenographers Crush hired couldn't stem the tide. The overwhelming response only buoyed the railroad agent. He'd promised his employers publicity, they'd gotten plenty, and the best was yet to come. If, for the moment, Crush felt he could do no wrong, he'd soon be reminded that pride does indeed goeth before a fall. In the final days, Crush kept up his publicity blitz. Thousands of gaudy lithographs with an artist's conception of the monster wreck were scattered across Texas and adjoining states. The line's chief mechanic pronounced the locomotives fit, and the crews rendered the old black engines festive, painting them bright green with red trim and red with green trim. They likewise gussied up the six stock cars each engine would pull, draping them with colorful banners advertising the Ringling Brothers Circus, the Texas State Fair, and the Oriental Hotel in Dallas. The trains then made whistle-stop tours throughout Texas. Retired Katy engineer Frank Barnes, who was a fireman on one of the engines that day, later recalled the event. "'We cut the reverse lever back to the second notch, stayed with the engine for 16 exhausts—that's four turns of the drivers—and then we jumped. Those were good engines. They really got up speed. From a standing start, they made the mile in just two minutes. I figured they were going about 50 miles an hour when they crashed. "'I was just a kid then,' he said." You know, that was back in September 1896. I should have had a bunch of pictures, but at that time I was young and I didn't care about such things. I said those were good locomotives and I meant it. You see, they were 30-ton engines, which were surplus. The Katy was putting in new 60-ton jobs. The road foreman of engines, Mr. McIlvaney, told me that they had about 50 of them and wanted to get rid of them. They were selling them to logging camps and gravel companies and such. Asked about the current stories of the Crush accident, Engineer Barnes shook his head. They come pretty close to being right, he said, but there's been some things left out. For instance, Mr. Crush took every precaution to make the whole affair a safe event. You know, that was back in the Lincoln pin Coupler days. In order to keep the trains from breaking apart, they were fastened together with extra chains. As an extra safety precaution, the rails were pulled up behind each train. That was in case one of them got away it couldn't run wild down the main line. Mr. Crush made sure there'd be a wreck, too. The locomotives were in perfect mechanical condition, but to ensure that the event would come off, Mr. Crush had an extra locomotive as a standby, just in case something happened to one of the painted-up engines. He rubbed his hands together as if polishing brass. I'll tell you, we really worked on those engines. Firemen in those days had to keep their engines in condition. We had to enamel our engines, fill the lights with oil, polish the brass, and all of those chores. We had a good time for a week before the wreck, though. You see, in order to advertise the event, we toured all of North Texas with one of the trains. We went to Waco, Denison, and all those towns along the Katy line. I still don't know what made those boilers explode. Everything was planned just right, and the crowd really got its money's worth. All of those safety precautions were taken, and nobody would have been hurt if the boilers hadn't gone off. Even then, they wouldn't have been hurt if they'd have stayed behind the safety lines after the collision. He named the crew of the two trains. Stanton and Kane were the engineers, he said. Dickerson and myself were firemen. The conductors were Webb and Thurman, and the brakemen, Parsons and Heacock. I don't remember their initials, and I don't know where they are now. Maybe they've passed on. On September 15th, William Crush was riding high, literally, on a tall black horse from which he'd supervised the festivities. Starting at dawn, four special Katy trains brought in spectators from all over the state. By 10 a.m., an estimated 10,000 people walked the grounds of the temporary but bustling community. Trains arrived at Crush Station every few minutes, well into the afternoon. Between them and the parade of arriving private buggies, carriages, and carts, the throng soon approached 40,000. A carnival atmosphere prevailed. The overflow crowd enjoyed games and speeches and gobbled down franks and sauerkraut at the diner beneath the giant tent borrowed from Ringling Though Crush had purposely selected a dry precinct of McLennan County, many had smuggled in beer and stronger potables. 200 special constables handled the occasional outbreak of fisticuffs and other drunken hijinks, lodging troublemakers in a makeshift calaboose. At 3 p.m., the trains emerged from their berths, wild cheering erupted, and hundreds crowded within feet of the track for a better look. Crush rode his prancing charger along the line and urged the trespassers back while the constables were more blunt. The effort only succeeded, wrote the Galveston Daily News, when the positive threat was made that if the people did not retire beyond the deadline, the collision would not take place. By 4 p.m., zero hour, passenger trains were still delivering carloads of curiosity seekers, and Crush announced an hour's postponement to allow for late arrivals. At five sharp, the dueling locomotives steamed slowly down the track and, like gladiators, stopped face-to-face in the middle for a salute. Then the engineers reversed gear and the trains lumbered back up to their starting points. Telegraph signals ran back and forth. Are you ready? Yes. Then go. Crushed raised his hat. The crowd roared and trains started downhill. A sound like the rattle of musketry added drama as each locomotive set off a series of track torpedoes, tiny charges used by railroads as warning signals, that crews had fastened along the rails. Test runs had predicted a terminal speed of 58 miles per hour. Nearer and nearer as they approached the fatal meeting place, the papers reported, the rumbling increased, the roaring grew louder, and the hundreds who had come miles to see found their hearts growing faint within them. Words and Kodaks are powerless, said the Ferris Texas Wheel, to picture the scene as the iron monsters dashed into each other. Onlookers had only seconds to absorb the rare sight, the deafening sound, the terrific concussion. Then as a few foolhardy souls rushed across the deadline, a horrific double explosion rent the air. Crush and his team had made a tragic miscalculation. In head-on collisions, engines typically rose together in an inverted V while the cars behind crumpled accordion-like. This time, for whatever reasons, the two engines instead telescoped together. Their boilers exploded at once, sending up what one reporter described as flying missiles of iron and steel, varying in size from a postage stamp to half a driving wheel. Tens of thousands scrambled to avoid the iron and wood debris catapulting through the sky. Distance was no guarantee of safety. Debris peppered the crowd and pocked the earth as far as 300 yards away. The black clouds of death-dealing iron hail claimed several victims. A 10-pound section of brake chain nearly cleaved teenager Ernest Darnell's head in two, killing him. Another chunk of iron hit local farmer John Overstreet's daughter, fracturing her skull. Though reports had the girl resting easy 30 minutes later, she died on the ride home. A flying bolt end knocked Waco photographer Jervis C. Dean from the press platform, ripping through his right eye and lodging in his brain. Miraculously, Dean didn't just survive, but stood, dusted himself off, and gave his two brothers, photographers themselves, minute directions about the finishing of the pictures he had taken. Dean would remain a photographer in Waco until 1901. Reports tallied sundry other injuries. Another airborne bolt pierced young Roy Kendrick's ankle. Theodore Milberger toppled from a tree and broke a leg. A flying timber downed a Waco fireman, smashing several of his ribs. Shrapnel cut and bruised many onlookers. And what did they do? Set up triage? Call the fire department and emergency medics? Heck no! They were out to get their $2 worth for the train ride as they raced to join the souvenir stampede, picking the iron and wood carcass as clean as a Thanksgiving turkey. An ironic casualty was Ferris resident John Morrison, who survived the explosion unscathed only to fall between cars on the train ride home. The caboose rolled over the unlucky man, killing him instantly, as voices above him were likely saying, I got two hot bolts. I got part of a wheel, I think. What'd you get? The KD executives clearly expected mass outrage over the debacle, for they immediately fired William Crush but public outcry amounted to little more than pooh-poohing and the clicking of tongues. The most damning press came from the Dallas Morning News, which editorialized that, when one looked closely at the smoking heap, the vanity of inanimate pride was shown to be as empty and hollow as that of mere mortals, even as it bragged that the city was well represented by the affair of 1,500 Dallasites. The Katy quietly settled lawsuits brought by injury victims and the families of the slain. Dean pocketed a $10,000 settlement and a lifetime rail pass. In the end, the monster wreck was every bit the public relations bonanza crush had promised. The Katy was the toast of Texas, as folks couldn't wait to ride the line audacious enough to stage its own train wreck. The Ferris Wheel pronounced the collision a howling success. One peculiar tribute came from ragtime composer Scott Joplin, who, some biographers claim, had witnessed the calamity. Joplin's Great Crush Collision March was among his early hits. Texas businesses also capitalized on the notoriety. Galveston clothier Edward Hirschfield advertised his own head-end collision, declaring in print that hard times have wrecked high prices. A Houston laundry boasted that, like the collision, it would make the dirt fly. Jervis Dean himself took out a newspaper advertisement reading, Have gotten all those loose screws and other hardware out of my head, and I'm now ready for all photographic business. The KD evidently figured it had gotten its money's worth as Crush was back on the payroll within days. The crash marked the end of his career as a showman, but he remained quietly in the line's employ until his retirement in 1940. The old huckster might have been proud, or perhaps horrified, to know that a century after his monster wreck, folks could witness similar spectacles weekly from the safety of their living rooms on such programs as Smash Lab and Destroyed in Seconds. For all his folly, Crush was a trailblazer, giving Americans possibly their first extreme reality show. Despite the disastrous results of the crash of Crush, other railroads continued to stage locomotive collisions in the years to come. In 1912, a steam locomotive being readied for a run at the Southern Pacific Roundhouse in San Antonio had its boiler rupture for unknown reasons. The resulting explosion leveled most of the buildings in the railroad yard and much of the surrounding neighborhood. A house and its owners seven blocks away were crushed by the front end of the locomotive as it fell from the sky. An estimated 40 people were killed and another 50 injured. And then there's the story of head-on Joe Connolly, who was so inspired by the crash at Crush that he went on to stage 146 more spectacular train wrecks across the country. In a book titled The Man Who Wrecked 146 Locomotives, The Story of Head-On Joe Connolly by James J. Reisdorf, you can get all the details should you want to stage your own train wreck. Although in today's parlance, a train wreck is thought of as a rapidly failing political career. Or a business about to go bust. By the 1930s, as the Depression set in, the popularity of staged, destructive events waned. People were seeing enough misery and weren't going to fork over the price of tomorrow's dinner for a chance to see more things break. And heck, with no more boiler explosions, the whole spectacle was over in a few seconds. And speaking of songs in railroad history, one song called The Wreck of Old 97 became a country legend. It's a true story about an engineer in Virginia who was pressured to get an older engine to its destination on time to deliver mail, but crashed it, taking his own life and ten others with him. It was first recorded back in the 20s, but my favorite version is the Statler Brothers with Johnny Cash. The lyrics go like this. They gave him his orders in Monroe, Virginia, saying, Steve, you're way behind time. This is not 38. This is old 97. You must put her in dispenser on time. He turned around and said to his black, greasy fireman, "'Better shovel on a little more coal, "'and when we cross that White Oak Mountain, "'you can watch old 97 roll. "'It's a mighty rough road from Lynchburg to Danville "'with a line on a three-mile grade. "'It was on that grade that he lost his air brakes, "'and you can see what a jump he made. "'He was going down the hill making 90 miles an hour "'when the whistle began to scream. "'They found him in the wreck with his hand on the throttle. "'He'd been scalded to death by the steam.' A telegram came from Washington Station, and this is how it read. The brave engineer who ran 97 is lying in Danville dead. So come all you ladies, you must take warning from this time on and learn. Never speak harsh words to your true loving husbands. They may leave you and never return. You can find the song on YouTube. It's a story that needs telling, and there's a good chance we'll be getting to it soon. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. You can catch all our episodes at 1001storiespodcast.com. And be sure to chime in with ideas at facebook.com slash 1001heroes. Until next time, this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story.